good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Happy Valentine's Day. Today on the program, I'll catch up with author and editor Doug Preston to talk about a unique new literary project that brought together 36 of the world's most popular fiction writers. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review Give Theater's new production, Mothers. Later in the show, I'll talk to Chicago Shakespeare Theater's creative producer about a new work that was inspired by Sufjan Stevens' 2005 album, Illinois. And I'll preview some of the Lunar New Year events taking place in the area. All that's coming up. Thanks for making time for some arts and culture this morning. My God, I'm so lonely, so I open the window to hear Some of the world's most popular authors have come together to contribute to a new project that's being called a collaborative novel. Margaret Atwood, John Grisham, R.L. Stein. Celeste Ng are just a few of the 36 writers who helped create the just-released book, 14 Days. Set during a two-week period in 2020 at the beginning of the pandemic, the book details the lives of the tenants residing in an apartment building on the Lower East Side of New York City. 14 Days came out earlier this week. All the proceeds from its sales will go toward the Authors Guild Foundation. The Guild's past president, Doug Preston, came up with the idea for the unique project. He then enlisted the help of acclaimed author Margaret Atwood to help recruit authors to participate, and then they both edited 14 Days. I recently caught up with Preston to talk about the evolution of the project and the work of the Authors Guild Foundation. What was the the inspiration for the idea that ended up turning into 14 Days? Many years ago, about 35 years ago, I had the idea of doing a pandemic novel, sort of like the Boccaccio's The Cameron. And I started it, and it was a total failure, so I I threw it out. (laughs) And then, when I was president of the Authors Guild in 2020, when the pandemic occurred, it suddenly, I thought, wow, we could maybe this would be an interesting time to do a pandemic novel. One of the things we've been talking about at the Authors Guild was to do an anthology, but that was difficult because we represent all different kinds of authors, you know, poets and children's authors, literary authors, everybody. It's hard to make an anthology out of that. So I proposed the idea to the Authors Guild that we do a kind of a collaborative novel where, like the Decameron, you have a bunch of people who are who are trapped and on the roof on and you know the idea basically developed that you know there are a group of people they're living in a shabby tenement in new york city the pandemic occurs they're in lockdown and they eventually find their way to the roof of the building um and they start telling stories to each other and so that was the basic idea what was the response from the guild and the members? Well, the guild thought that it was a great idea, and uh, we enlisted Margaret Atwood to help recruit the authors. And so she recruited uh, 36 absolutely fantastic, really wonderful authors 
famous, many best-selling authors, also award-winning authors, to cooperate on this project. And we asked them to write a story in the first person that would be told on the rooftop. And then we took those, we got 36 stories from all different kinds of authors, you know, John Grisham, R.L. Stein, uh, Celeste Ng. I mean, it goes on and on. We got wonderful Dave Eggers, terrific authors who wrote these stories that some of them are just unbelievably good, and some are quite terrifying, and just every kind of story you can imagine. We got 36 stories, and then we wrote a frame narrative. So that's like the story that all these stories are embedded within. And uh, it sounds complicated, but it's a really interesting, fun literary project. So the super of the building is a, is a woman named Yessi. And so she, on, on this rooftop, as everyone is telling their stories, she's secretly recording them. She goes to her apartment at night. She transcribes what they've said. And she also adds her own sarcastic uh, and acerbic commentary to it. And that is the book. So that's the collaborative novel, essentially. Right. And you wrote the superintendent part? I did, yeah. I wrote the uh, frame narrative. So it's, it's sort of a bit like maybe A Thousand and One Nights. You know, it's stories within stories and even within stories. Right. With each, each day representing like a new set of stories. Exactly. And then they're in between the, pe- the various characters on the roof are talking to each other. And, and uh, you know, they're, they're typical New Yorkers. They, in the beginning, on the rooftop, they don't want anything to do with each other. They're just messing with their phones or smoking weed and getting high or having a margarita or whatever. But then as the pandemic progresses and they realize, you know, they're going to be in lockdown for a while, that's when they start talking to each other. And then eventually they start telling stories, and then this, eventually they, be, they become, by the end of this 14-day lockdown period, they become a community. Let's listen to a clip from the audiobook version of 14 Days. This is the superintendent character that Preston wrote. Call me 1A. I'm the super of a building on Rivington Street on the Lower East Side of New York City. It's a six-floor walk-up with the farcical name of the Fernsby Arms, a decaying crap shack tenement that should have been torn down long ago. It's certainly not keeping up with the glorious yuppification of the neighborhood. As far as I know, nobody famous has ever lived here. There have been no serial killers, subversive graffiti artists, notorious drunken poets, radical feminists, or Broadway song pluggers commuting to Tin Pan Alley. There might have been a murder or two, the building looks it, but nothing that made the New York Times. I hardly know the tenets at all. I'm new here. Got the job a few weeks ago, around the time the city was shut down by COVID. The apartment came with a job. Its number, 1A, sounded like it was on the first floor. But when I got here, and it was too late to back out, I found it was actually in the basement, and as dark as the broom closet of Hades, and a cell phone dead zone to match. The basement in this building is the first floor, the second floor is the real first floor, and so on up to six. A con. That was a clip from the audiobook version of 14 Days. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with author Doug Preston. He co-edited the new book that's being called A Collaborative Novel. You kind of uh, alluded to it, but did you and, and Margaret Atwood give these uh, participating authors some guidelines as to what they should do? Not really. Uh, maybe we should have. <laughs> but we, <laughs> we, we, we basically said, write whatever you want, um, just as long as it's in the first person and has the voice of a story being told. And what was really interesting about this was that, you know, we had authors from all different genres, but many of them decided to write a story outside their genre. So, for example, Diana Gabaldon, who writes those incredible Outlander books, um, she wrote two stories, but they were true stories, true stories about her life. Um, John Grisham wrote a story which was a true story about his life and his childhood, um, whereas Hampton Sides, who was a very a wonderful nonfiction author, wrote a fictional story about a guy who swims across, a guitarist who swims across the Mississippi River and is bitten by a, a gar, which is a hideous prehistoric fish, and almost loses his arm. <laughs> so, so it was kind of a surprise how the authors often would write stories outside their normal genre. We should mention that as you're reading it, uh, as I am, you don't know what author has, has wrote which part. And you can go to the back and look it up, but you could just read the whole book and not know. Yeah, that was an interesting idea we had, which we didn't know if the authors would accept it or not, but they did. And that is that we didn't give bylines. When you read this book, you don't know who wrote which story. It's kind of like an, a fun literary puzzle. And we made it difficult to figure it out. You have to go to the back of the book and flip through and figure out who wrote what. So it's sort of, it's, it's fun. You know, it's a literary uh, puzzle. The proceeds for 14 days will go to the Authors Guild Foundation. For listeners, my listeners who aren't as familiar, what type of work does the, the Guild Foundation do? Well, the Authors Guild is our country's oldest and largest association of authors and journalists of, who write books. And uh, the proceeds from this are going to support a couple of initiatives of the Authors Guild. The first one is to fight against book banning. And uh, we're not just talking about it. We actually have attorneys on staff, and we are litigating against the book banners. We are taking them to court, and we are winning our cases. Um, this, a lot of this book banning is clearly unconstitutional. Um, we're also uh, using some of the funds to push back against the big AI companies that are ingesting hundreds of thousands of our copyrighted books to build their AI systems, like ChatGPT, without our permission and without compensation. And the third thing we're doing with a very generous grant from James Patterson to contributing to it is we are building a licensing system so that, like ASCAP or BMI for music, but this is for authors, so that AI, you know, big tech, can come to the Authors Guild or, or come to this licensing system and legitimately license copyrighted books for developing AI systems um, and compensate the authors fairly for the use of their work. So those, those are really important initiatives that are going to support, that support authors, support books, and 
really uh, nurture American literary culture. Technology has changed so many sectors and how business is done. And some of the issues that you reference have been around for a while, but it seems like advancements in AI have made bigger waves in recent years. Have some of these things been on the Authors Guild's radar for a while? Well, we've been we've been concerned about this for a long time. You know, the big tech companies like Google um, have this have been operating on a philosophy of you know information wants to be free, which sounds in principle like a good thing. But what it really means is that, that they want authors and other creative people to give up their work without compensation so that they can then deliver that content to people, wrapping advertising around it, so that Google can monetize our creative work instead of us. So it's really hypocritical because for, for them. So, so we've been pushing back against them for a while. But when AI came out, and all of a sudden, literally thousands of AI-written books started to appear on Amazon for sale. We were very concerned. And when we saw that ChatGPT had ingested hundreds of thousands of our books, and actually we did some research into this, and we found the question is, where did they get the text to these books? Did they buy them? Well, they didn't buy them. They actually scraped the data from book piracy websites in Russia because that's where a lot of the book piracy goes on. The Russians set up these piracy websites, not for books in Russian, but for books, American books in English. So the chat GPT stole, you know, stole stolen books. <laughs> they stole the, the books from piracy websites and used it to build their artificial intelligence chat GPT, which is then writing books, which are now directly competing with human authors. So we've, We've sued uh, OpenAI and uh, Microsoft over this issue. Um, I'm one of the plaintiffs, but it's a class action lawsuit on behalf of all fiction authors. So because, you know, it's just grossly unfair. They, they can't take our work without asking permission, without compensating us. It's just not right. And it's against clear violation of copyright. Beyond the lawsuit, uh, will this effort also entail in having to write new legislation that provides future protections? Well, I think that copyright law, as it is constituted, is probably pretty clear that copying hundreds of thousands of stolen books is not, quote, fair use. I mean, copyright law allows for a fair use exemption. Let's say you, you want to quote from a book in something you're working on. Well, you're allowed to quote from that book a limited quotation. Um, but what you're not allowed to do is to take the whole book and, and reproduce it. And you're certainly not allowed to reproduce it and then sell it or create a commercial product with it. So um, it may take more new legislation. It may require updating copyright law to the digital age. But in this case, what OpenAI and Microsoft have done and all the other AI systems in taking books is so egregious, it's clearly a violation of existing copyright. And then as far as the other initiative you mentioned, uh, banned books, I've told this story on my show a a couple times. Uh, I remember doing a piece on Banned Books Week in 2007. I talked with someone with the American Library Association, and I just remember thinking at the time how how antiquated like the idea of banning books felt and at that point like it wasn't getting a lot of uh, attention and there 
really didn't seem to be that many challenges. I felt it was kind of like a non-issue, but fast forward about 15 years and all that's changed. Are, have you, are you surprised by just the rise in attempts to ban books in different states? I'm actually quite surprised. As you say, it seems very antiquated. But, you know, there, there, there are different types of book banning. There's legitimate questions about whether books, certain books are appropriate for, like, elementary school children. But what these book banners are doing is they're trying to ban books from libraries and ban them from bookstores. They're threatening bookstores, saying that, that this is pornography and that the bookstores are going to be liable for criminal prosecution for having, having those books on their shelves. You know, it's, it's, it's unconstitutional. And you know, no one is forcing anybody to read a book. Um, you know, if you don't want to read the book, you don't have to. And so what these book banners are trying to do is really to prevent people from reading the books, from gaining access to the books that they want to have. And, you know, all kinds of books are being banned. I mean, you've got, you know, Margaret Atwood's books are being banned. You know, Diana Gabaldon's books are being banned. I mean, I, I have so many friends who are authors who are having wonderful books that they've tried to ban. And it's very un-American. It's very uh, against the free flow of information, which is really one of the foundational concepts of our Constitution, is that Americans should have the right to access whatever information they want to access, even if some of it offends other people. You know, we're not a we're not Soviet Russia, where you know, we're, or China. You know, so these book banners are really involved in a very un-American activity, and we're pushing it back against them hard. Last thing for you, what are you hoping readers who pick up 14 Days take away? Well, it's a, it's a really good read. I mean, you can say all you want about a book, but if it doesn't grip you from the first page and draw you into the story, then it's not a good book. And this book is, does that. It's just a really good read. It pulls you into the story. They're fantastic characters. They're all these crazy stories. Stories within stories. Uh, some of these stories are terrifying or, and violent. Others are very beautiful. And, and they're love stories. They're confessions of crime. There's um, ghost stories, all kinds of stories. And then at the very end of the book, there is a huge surprise for the reader, which I can't say because you know, I don't want to give it away. Right. But it's, it's, a, it's a good one. <laughs> The book is 14 Days. Doug, thanks so much for making time to, to talk with me. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show. That's Doug Preston. He's an author and the co-editor of the new collaborative novel, 14 Days. It's available everywhere books are sold. And a quick reminder to check out the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the show. You can also find a Contact Me button. If you've got a comment or a question, reach out. You can find me at gzydic at wdcb.org, or find me on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, with the handle at... On Air Gary.
Tell your children not to walk my way Tell your children not to hear my words What they mean, what they say Mother And you are listening to the art section. My name's Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Good morning. Good morning. Happy President's Day to everybody. <laughs> oh, right. I almost forgot. You, you're dressed like Abraham Lincoln right this second, aren't you, Jonathan? <laughs> no, no, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> I wanted to wear a wig today. So I'm Tom Jefferson. <laughs> Just today? (laughs) (laughs) Passive-aggressive mom group dynamics are amped up and give theater's new production, Mothers. It comes from L.A.-based playwright and screenwriter Anna Oyoung-Munch. She's a writer on a TV series that I admire a lot, Severance, which is on Apple TV. Another side note, one of her other plays, In Quietness, is currently running at a Red Orchid Theater in Chicago. But today the critics will be reviewing Mothers, directed here by Helena Case. Jonathan, we'll start with you. What do you think? Well, you know, I, I have to start out by saying I have an adorable niece who turns two next month, and she goes to daycare three days a week. Now, I hope and pray she never encounters parents like those in this play, <laughs> which is set in a daycare center on Mommy Baby Meetup Day. Mothers, I have to say, is a savage play any way you cut it, and it's difficult for me to recommend it despite a solid production. Now, it is billed as a dark comedy, and Act One introduces three mothers and one stay-at-home dad who engage in cutting verbal competition for, well, I'm not sure for what, for most protective parent rights, for cutest baby rights? I don't know. One of the mothers is breastfeeding, and her breast milk quickly becomes a literal life and death issue. And there's also a nanny watching someone else's baby who never says a word until Act Two, when the verbal savagery turns physical, as the daycare center is cut off from the outside world by an ongoing war. Uh, I, I should throw in that this is the near future USA, by the way, in an unnamed city. Now, there actually are only four babies which are represented in the play by the device of large teddy bears. So one of the five parents and nannies, one of them is faking it. I will not say which one, of course. I will only say that Act Two portrays several murders uh, which cement the play's savagery. Carrie? Well, you know, it's mommy wars meets a real war is what we're seeing here. (laughs) I have to say, I've not seen In Quietness, from what I understand, that play at a Red Orchid Theater, which coincidentally stars Brittany Birch, who is one of the co-artistic directors for Gift. So there is a connection with both those companies there as well. That play I have not seen, but it also seems to, from what I understand, focus on women's life choices. It's based on a real story about an evangelical homemaking house. Uh, where women go to learn how to be, you know, better housewives and better helpmates to their husbands and, you know, submit and all of that. Um, the women we're seeing in Mothers are not quite in that mode, but there's still a great deal of internecine warfare, microaggressions and just plain old aggressions coming out. Some of the topics will seem familiar. Breastfeeding versus bottle feeding, to vax or not to vax. And indeed, 
whether uh, you should be a stay-at-home mom or whether you should, in fact, use skills and the education that you acquired and work outside the home. All of these are things that have been well-trod, I think, in many other plays, but they are sharpened to a savage stiletto point in the conflicts here. There are, as you say, uh, Jonathan, there's uh, three actual mothers. One is from out of town, visiting her best college friend, who seems to have bonded more with another mother in this unnamed town. So there's that sort of, you know, the jealousy of my best friend now has another best friend on top of the uh, infighting about who is a better mommy. There's a nanny, and then there is uh, the one man who is there, kind of the stay-at-home dad, who keeps insisting rather comically that he's not unemployed, he's a freelancer, <laughs> and uh, he, he also stands up for his manhood in a very funny and unquotable monologue in the first act. <laughs> to me, though, Jonathan, and I think this is what you're getting at a little bit, too, it felt like two different plays across the two acts, which is fine. Yep. Sharp tonal shifts are not, you know, forbidden, you know, in plays. But I didn't feel like the connective tissue between the acts, and I agree with you, this is a very solid production, well-directed, extremely well-acted, but I didn't necessarily believe the shifts that happened in the second act. Even though some things were seeded, some things were also kind of left to the side. Like one thing I found a little intriguing but not fully developed is the sort of reverse racism, I guess, if you will, where they talk about the beige people and, uh, oh, my child is half beige. I'm an ally to the beige people. This comes up a lot in the first act. But none of that racial tension is really explored in the second act. And it is primarily a cast of, of BIPOC women with one with the man played by a beige actor, if you will. So I, I, I sort of felt like it was going in the direction of saying something interesting there. But honestly, I was a little bit puzzled by what the ultimate point of that was because it didn't really play out in the second act. I feel like this is something that occurs in varying ways throughout the second act, which is very grim. Um, I I would want to warn people about that going in. So uh, what are your feelings on that, Jonathan? Did it feel kind of like two different plays to you? Well, it certainly did, and uh, so we were in agreement on that. And, uh, you know, I I was betting that because this play is... uh, such a strong feminist piece in many ways, though mm-hmm. not in all ways, even though the women are the central characters. Um, but I was betting that you would be more open to liking it than, um, than, than, than I, 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 I was. I don't dislike yeah. it, but I feel no, like no, there's no, a I lot understand. of opportunities that are yeah. missed here. So Yeah, I, I, I do agree with you. There are a few things about mothers that seem off to me. And uh, first is the fact that the playwright, Anne Yang Munch, offers no information whatsoever about the war outside until the military crisis, uh, which concludes Act One. And if the play is about the present state of America and perils to our freedom, and I have read some interpretations that this is what the play is really about. If that's what it's about, then such information about what is going on outside the daycare center, mm-hmm. that information is essential. And if that's not the play's concern, then something non-political, say an earthquake, would do just as well as a war and right. maybe be less, less confusing. Next, you can correct me about this if you are in, in or e. Gary, perhaps you, since you are the father of a of a of a still young child. I've not known private daycare centers that take nine month old and eleven month old infants, but this one does. Although it appears to have no staff and no water or milk <laughs> or formula 
or food stocks whatsoever in the place. Right. Uh, these are, what's the best way to put it? These are reality groundings that aren't there for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. If you're going to have that shift, I think that, that you're hitting on something important, Jonathan. I didn't even mean to jump in. But, you know, if the first act is meant to be sharp-edged, but essentially realist, you know, like it's a little yeah. heightened realism in the way that, yes, there are mothers who, you know, we do know that women have had conflicts amongst themselves, being stay-at-home moms or working mothers, breastfeeding versus not. Certainly vaxxing has been a huge issue even before COVID. Um, so those things are realistic and maybe a little heightened, but they still need to be rooted in something real, so that in a way, when the second act happens, where everything is turned topsy-turvy, you know, the realer the first act is, the more disconcerting and the more of a gut punch that reality being subverted or torn apart would be. The play, interestingly, was, I think, uh, premiered in 2019. They do mention, I think, at one point, insurrection. So this would have been before Mm. the insurrection we've all (laughs) come to talk about since then. I mean, certainly... I think it's hitting on divisions that have been taking place in American society. But again, it's vague. Is this an outside invasion? Is this a civil war? I was sort of leaning more towards the latter. But we're not really told explicitly. And again, I don't know that we would need to be necessarily if the first act had more of a grounding in like some of the basic mundanities of how this place runs, right? Yeah, yeah. and certainly the, the characters we do see, the three mothers, the nanny, the, uh, the, the one father, are not are not uh, defined by political lines uh, in in any way whatsoever. No, no, there's definitely no. lifestyle choice change, you know, like lifestyle no, in the sense no. of I stay at home, you go to work, I'm a better mother than you because of this, that sort of I thing. I freelance yeah. and you're unemployed, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to ask about the nanny, though. Did you feel, uh, it beautifully, you know, again, these are all wonderfully performed roles, but I feel like the trope of having, I mean, yes, they are all women of color in that sense, but... This played very obviously by uh, an Asian woman, an immigrant, as the nanny, as the strong, who kind of becomes like the strongest figure in the second act. But, you know, she's very quiet and mostly observing in the first act and then kind of comes to the fore. That in its own way, like, I don't know, I wasn't clear if Monk was sending up that stereotype of the immigrant woman who carries the world on her shoulders or if she was actually kind of relying on that stereotype. And that was something that kind of threw me a bit in the second act as well. You know, yeah. like, it's, 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 it's obviously a trope we've seen a lot, and I wasn't clear if she was trying to explore that or was just kind of, you know, throwing it on stage and hoping we wouldn't notice that that's what was happening. Well, I, and I certainly don't know the answer. I, sure. I agree with you. And I wonder... Whether the script specifies the ethnicities of the characters, I believe that it does. From what I've read in reviews of earlier productions, that at least they should be. I mean, maybe not specified, but I think does ask they be played by. I I may be wrong on this, but I I believe that it was asked that they be played by you know by women of color. I think it's fair to say that, especially in Act One, the characters are well drawn, and the dialogue is crisp and pointed, and like you said, uh, uh, stiletto-like and often funny. But by Act Two, in the play's conclusion, things seem arbitrary rather than emerging from the characters that we have seen. And I agree with you. It's partly because the circumstances of Acts One and Two are almost two separate plays. Right. And so I would say to people out there, so you are cautioned. Although well staged, Mothers is a tough, visceral play to watch, 
um, uh, I, I will say that one of the savage acts that takes place is an infanticide. And to think about it intellectually, which is what I've done, may protect you, may protect me from mm-hmm. the play's considerable gut punch, but it doesn't make it any less disturbing. It is a disturbing piece of work. Yeah, I was actually just finding, this is a review that ran from the New York production, where they quoted the playwright as saying that the, that the play takes place in an off-kilter, funhouse, mirror version of our reality, an alternate universe where people of color are at the top of the hierarchy and white people, called beige people, are at the bottom. But the audience will feel a sickening feeling as the racial power dynamics of our world and history start clawing their way on stage in Act Two. So it seems to me that, yeah, that's a very deliberate thing. But again, for me, it was puzzling because it felt like the racial dynamics became, in some ways, the least of it. You know, I mean, it's there, but I I just didn't quite see it fully realized, I guess. Um, If the play and the power dynamic is what what you have just quoted from a different review... That's actually from the playwright herself, apparently, from the script that they're quoting in the review. He certainly fails to make that clear and establish that fact... Um, uh, you know, I thought beige people. I took it as a as a humorous reference to mixed race children. Right, uh, and I, I and, and it's also then. it also gets confused with the gender dynamics because the one beige character is the man. So for me, what's taking place in the second act is more of a reassertion of what we might call toxic masculinity, or yeah. you know, the the traditional male power structures that aren't necessarily tied in to racial dynamics. It seemed to yeah. me to be more of a gender. And certainly these things intersect. They are complex, but I feel like the complexity just sort of got thrown away in the second act there. Yes. So, yeah. Maybe a bit too much on the plate and not a bit... But, uh, but, I, clearly, but I will say, particularly in the done. first act, I laughed hard at a lot of the... You yeah. know, this is kind of... It's almost like... I mean, there is a sort of elevated quality, not elevated in highfalutin, but in sort of terms of, like, exaggerated quality of like almost like a real housewives episode or something the way these women go after each other and if you like that sort of thing they are delivered very well by this cast which includes oh, some, some right. gift regulars as well as uh some actors who were new to me so i i wanted to raise a historical point of reference or or comparison uh and carrie this is something you may know about from your study and reading there was a british play in 1965 written by uh a early career, Edward Bond, who went on to quite a distinguished playwriting career. It was called Saved. Right, And right. it featured in the middle of it a bunch of uh, a street gang, you mm-hmm. know, a, 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 a working-class uh, uh, London street gang, stoning to death a baby in a baby carriage, uh, right. a British cram. Now, you never saw the baby. You didn't actually see uh, the bloody stoning. But the baby was stoning stoned to death, and this scene caused outrage and picketing and and, and uh, uh, threats to shut the play down, and indeed it may have been shut down. It was hugely controversial. Even uh, as noted a figure as uh, uh, Lord Lawrence Olivier, a director of mm-hmm. the National Theatre of Great Britain, wrote a letter to one of the big papers in defense of the play and mm-hmm. the necessity of seeing a socially important statements such as the play saved and i contrast this to the almost casual act of infanticide that mothers incorporates and wondering how you react to that yeah and it's it's not made i don't 
working into spoilers territory, but as you said, Jonathan, the babies are all represented by Teddy. Not Not literalized, yes, yeah. I mean, no, there's not really a baby on stage. We should be clear on that. But but, um, it almost makes it more disquieting because we've sort of, in the first act, been, like, asked to not really buy into these teddy bears as children. They're almost like cartoons of children. They're almost like projections of the parents, right, and of their egos and of their needs, whereas, you know, um, which, I mean, arguably children at nine months, you know, you can't ask them what they think about that, you know, their state in the world. You're getting it through their parents' lenses. But then to have it, it, it is very disturbing. And, I, and of course, that's with intent. But because, again, we have not had the grounding, in, enough of the grounding in the first act, I think there's a point that's being made here about what happens with maternal love. And I think you can make a, a cogent point that sometimes, you know, being maternal love means I will fight fiercely for my child. And I will not care what happens to your child as long as my child survives, right? That's that's a very grim way of looking at the world, but you could make that a story. I find it interesting that we're seeing more of these dystopic sorts of things. I mean, the the series Yellow Jackets on Showtime about a group of women who are, you know, who uh, crash land in the wilderness, and unlike you know the members of the rugby team <laughs> that crashed yeah. in the Andes, they they turn on each other. They do not. You know, mutual support breaks down pretty quickly. Um, you know, so I think there's definitely sort of a zeitgeist thing that Monk is, uh, Monk is uh, uh, tapping into here in terms of, wow, we seem to be closer and closer to the edge of sort of societal collapse. And what will that mean for traditional family structures, gender roles? But it, it, it's heightened in two different ways. In the first act, it's heightened in this very broad, comic, exaggerated vision of what the mommy wars are and then it kind of goes into this you know sarah kane blasted sarah kane being a british a later playwright later than bond who also wrote very grim very dark uh you know post-war or during civil war stories um that also were quite quite controversial um and and i'm not sure that these two worlds i'm not sure that the second world flows naturally from what we saw in the first world. I'm not denying that either cannot exist. Again, I'm going back to the connective tissue idea that there's not a spine or a sort of, you know, series of nerves from from Act 1 to Act 2 that make it easy for me to make that journey. Yeah. yeah. Well, obviously, the playwright Anna Uyang Munch is one that uh, is going to leave you thinking uh, oh, yeah, and, and I would definitely, I, I hope to see the Red Orchid show, which I've not yeah. seen yet. I would and, see more work by her. I want to make yeah. that clear, because yeah. I think she's definitely got a sharp edge for dialogue and, and uh, should, you know, is not afraid to take on big, dark and, things. So, And we should say, as far as I, uh, as far as I know, I think I'm correct, Mothers, uh, which we're talking about today at Gift Theater and in Quietness at a Red Orchid, uh, both running at the same time are the first two plays by Ms. Munch to be produced in Chicago. So that, they're both that is Chicago my, premieres and an that, That's my understanding as well. Yeah. So. yeah, someone to watch indeed. Gift Theaters Mothers running at the Filament Theater through March 3rd. Quickly, the uh, the Joseph Jefferson Awards will celebrate 50 years of non-equity recognition on March 25th at the Park West. The nominations for the non-equity Jeff Awards were announced earlier this week. Co-Candy Productions led the way with 17 nominations. Theo 
received 16 nominations and refracted theaters uh, tambo and bones which uh, the two of you talked about last year garnered the largest nominations for a single production with 10 did either of you take a look at the noms you know, I did, and I think, I, by my count, I think I saw about 19 of the nominated productions, which feels pretty good, but of course, there's always so many more that I did not see. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think it's definitely a sign that, that uh, the non-equity and smaller theaters are fully back. You know, it's interesting because there's been so much about the, uh, you know, the problems going on in, in, in American theater, and I feel like it's focused a lot on the larger regionals, which I understand they tend to be major drivers. But when I look at this list, I don't know what your feeling would be, Jonathan, but I feel a sense of hopefulness that so many of these companies, some of which are fairly new even since the pandemic and others that are coming back, um, you know, after that enforced shutdown that, that, you know, had to have slowed momentum for them, that they're doing well and that they're producing work that is being recognized as quality uh, work in the city. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is, one should point out, this year will be the 50th anniversary of the non-equity wing of the Jefferson Committee. Originally, it was called the Jeff Citations. Now it is the, the non-equity uh, Jeff Awards. And um, way, way back uh, several decades ago in much earlier life, I was the second chairperson of the non-equity wing of the Jeff Committee for about three years. And uh, I'm the person who first staged the annual event at the Park West, and <laughs> that has sort of become the tradition. So, yes, uh, the the number of non-equity theaters has expanded. They do incredible work. Uh, you and I reviewed several of the nominated right. pr productions, uh, the ones that immediately come to mind, the musical American Psycho that Kokandi did, and mm -hmm. and uh, the Three Penny Opera at, right, uh, right. at Ubique Theater, a Cabaret Theater. Uh, among others, so it's an and it's always an exciting yes. evening. It, it and is, and one thing that that I think is great that uh, this is true for both the equity and the non-equity wing, but they introduced the uh, the awards for short runs during you know I think coming out of pandemic when people weeks. were doing shorter short runs, runs weeks and they have kept like that. that they have yeah. kept that. And I think that's great, particularly for the non-equity companies that tend to work on more of a shoestring budget and may not be able to run for four or six weeks, but maybe you know, are doing really quality work for three weeks. Uh, some of the work that we saw, too, uh, uh, North and Sewer, which we saw with Water People Theater, yeah, last Campbell. year, I think you and I both noticed what a lot strong showing there was for uh, Latino work and also work that was right. presented in Spanish or bilingual work. There seems to still be, you know, a commitment to that going forward, right. or at least we some recognition for that, which is always nice to see. Yeah. We talked about North and Sewer. We also discussed on radio uh, Tambo and Bones, right. which has come up with a, a number of uh, uh, nominations for the, the non-equity mm -hmm. Jeffs. The award ceremony is Monday night, March 25th, at the Park West uh, nightclub. Tickets are, are available to the public if you go to the Jefferson Committee, the Jeff Awards uh, website. So that's exciting news, and it, it kind of piggybacks with the start of the League of Chicago Theaters Theater Week, which uh, began uh, last Friday, uh, runs through the 18th, the 18th of February, with, I think, an extension beyond that. Uh, go to the League of Chicago Theaters website, uh, chicagoplays.com, and you'll find an incredible list of plays, and I think also some dance and musical mm -hmm. offerings, uh, at 
deeply discounted prices, one-third off, even 50% off, and probably a few free events as well. A wide variety from large theaters, large equity theaters, to small non-equity theaters, everything in between. All right. Gary, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. You're welcome. You're listening to WDCB. My name is Gary Zydek. This is the art section. The Year of the Dragon is officially underway. The Lunar New Year celebration kicked off yesterday and will continue for the next two weeks. While the calendar is sometimes just called lunar, it adds an extra month every few years to stay in sync with the solar cycle, so it's technically lunar and solar. This means that the date of the Lunar New Year in the Gregorian calendar changes from year to year, but always falls in January or February. The holiday, which is celebrated in many Asian countries, has become more visible in the U.S. in recent years. In 2024, there are several ways to celebrate in the Chicago area. The Field Museum, Navy Pier, and the Chicago Cultural Center are just a few of the organizations presenting Lunar New Year programming. There are two Lunar New Year parades coming up, one on the north side of Chicago on February 17th that runs near Argyle and Broadway, and then the traditional Chinatown parade on Sunday, February 18th. And there's a free Lunar New Year's concert today at the Chicago Cultural Center that starts at 2 p.m., And then coming up later this week, the Chinese American Museum of Chicago is hosting a Chinese New Year celebration from 1 to 3 p.m. on February 18th. That's at 24th and Wentworth Avenue. And if you're in the western suburbs, the Downers Grove Public Library has a Lunar New Year celebration on February 18th at 2 p.m. You can find a list of a whole bunch of other things taking place at ChineseFineArts.org. I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. An indie album that's developed a devoted following over the past two decades is the source material for a new piece of theater that's premiering in Chicago. This summer will mark the 19th anniversary of the release of Sufjan Stevens' Illinois, also known as Sufjan Stevens Invites You to Come On and Feel the Illinois. We couldn't imagine what it was In the spirit of This is the first track on the album concerning the UFO sighting near Highland, Illinois. That took its form Then to Lebanon The album was announced as the second in an ambitious 50-state project where Stevens would release an album inspired by every state. He has since said the whole idea was a joke. He released an album titled Michigan in 2003 and two years later, Illinois. Every song on the album dives into a specific story based in the state. Some are joyful, like Come On, Feel the Illinois. But then 
Others explore darker aspects of the state's history, like this song, titled John Wayne Gacy Jr. His father was a drinker And his mother cried in bed Folding John Wayne's t-shirts When the swing set hit his head The neighbors, they adored him For his humor Personally, I was a huge fan of the album from the first time I listened to it. I loved almost every song. But there's one track on Illinois in particular that helped the album and Stevens reach a whole new audience. Chicago. review site Pitchfork wrote, quote, The gut-punching Chicago cagely celebrates the innate and deeply American tendency to employ highways as escape routes, ditching old mistakes for new swatches of land, new plates of eggs, new parking lots. Impossibly propulsive, each calm, harmonized cry of all things go pushes harder, promising liberation by death or by automobile. Over the years, Illinois' popularity has grown. The song Chicago in particular has been used in some films and TV shows, helping it reach a new audience. Last year, Chicago Shakespeare Theater announced it would be premiering a new kind of musical based on the music and lyrics of Stevens's indie classic. The origins of the theater piece come from renowned director and choreographer Justin Peck. The New York-based artist is friends with Stevens and had approached him about the idea of turning the album into a theater production for years. Eventually, he got Stevens' approval, and then Chicago Shakespeare got involved. I recently visited Chicago Shakespeare's Navy Pier office to catch up with the company's creative producer, Rick Boyton. The idea, as you said, was Justin's idea, and he'd worked with Sufjan a bunch of times, and uh, it was brought to us and to see if we would be interested in, you know, uh, co-commissioning the piece. It was such a big idea, and we are all about big ideas and storytelling, that we were like, absolutely, this sounds amazing. You know, and when Jackie Sibley-Struri came on board, it's an incredible creative team. We were, we were hooked. As far as describing the work that premiered just over a week ago, Boynton didn't want to categorize it as a straight musical or dance production. Illinois is its own thing. What I love about it, it's a signature, really singular event that is an amalgam of this amazing album, and Sufjan is an incredible composer and musician, 
and the vernacular of dance and the narrative, the story narrative that it is, so that it really is this singular event. Working on this piece has really been a, a labor of love because the people involved are so amazing and the work and the rigor to the attention to the art, just everything that's spinning in the room creates an electricity that I think audiences are really responding to. Boynton did share that there isn't any dialogue in Illinois. The story on stage is conveyed through the music that's played and the movement of performers. Is there any dialogue? There isn't. Actually, everything, the, the lyrics um, help tell the story, but certainly it is all the elements spinning in the room, whether that is the dance, whether that's the music, whether that's lyric, whether that's gesture, whether that's set, whether that's projection. There's, there's a lot of creativity that's, that's laying out this really powerful, powerful story. And then music, as you referenced, I would imagine, uh, plays a big part. Musicians are on stage? Musicians are on stage. We have a band of 14 and three singers and who are really, it's, an ast it's really an astounding group of musicians and performers and singers. So yeah, for those Sufjan fans, the rendering of this album, just musically, is terrific. Let's listen to a clip from the production. This is the cast performing Chicago. You came to take us All things go, all things go To recreate us All things grow, all things grow We had a mindset All things know, all things know This is Chicago from Chicago Shakespeare's new production, Illinois. A version of this work did run at Bard College in New York last year, but the production has changed since then. It's a new work, so, you know, um, everything develops. And with every outing and developmental step and, and everything that has happened, um, you know, it will continue to develop. And, uh, and so we're, we were just really glad to be part of that journey. And there has been a lot of anticipation for this production, given the album's local connections. Boynton says it will be interesting to see how audiences respond. With all good theater, everyone takes what, you know, everyone brings their context and their experience to something. And then what they see in it and what they take away from it is a very personal thing. But the beauty of theater and live theater is that that personal experience 
happens in a communal space with everyone else in the room having this experience and finding out where those experiences coalesce or how they all fit together is really the magic and power of live theater. And it's here in Chicago. I know it's doing really well, and then it's going to go to New York. Who knows, I guess, what the future holds, but would you anticipate it coming back to Chicago at some point? You know what? It so beautifully lives in Chicago and Illinois. My hope is that it'll come back here. I think it's. I think it has a very promising future ahead of it. So, so, but my hope is that that it would come back. That's Rick Boyton. He's the creative producer for Chicago Shakespeare Theater. Illinois is running through February 18th. There are a few tickets left for some of the remaining performances, but not many. Go to chicagoshakes.com for more info. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. for another edition of the Arts Section right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM. Until then, I hope you have a great week. We'll say goodbye with uh, a track off Sufjan Stevens' Illinois. This is called They Are Night Zombies. They Are Neighbors. They Have Come Back from the Dead. Thanks for listening. Oh